Hello, and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I am Catherine Wright. And I am David Bryan. Hello, David. Hi. How are you, David? Uh, uh, in general, I'm quite well. I'm just, just the last couple of days, I've started to feel Christmassy. I think it's the oh, weather, because it's got really cold. Mm, it has got pretty chilly here, too. I'm not quite feeling the Christmas spirit yet, I must say. You know, we don't have any decorations or anything like that. See, my house has got this weird thing of we never take decorations down from anything. So we've still got yes. Easter and Halloween and Christmas decorations up that have been accumulated over the years. But I've bought more Christmas decorations. <laughs> we never we never go overboard that much. So it's only like a couple of sort of little pine cone wreaths and bells with mm-hmm. ribbon. Just that sounds nice. Stuff that doesn't look... If it's not Christmas, you wouldn't necessarily see, think yeah. that it's Christmas. Um, so I always feel like I've got to turn it up a little mm. bit on Christmas. Yeah, I, I, want, I want tinsel. I was never allowed tinsel as a child. No, because my dad really hates it. Oh, and right. so he wouldn't let us put it up in the living room or anywhere in, that he might be. So we could have a little bit in our bedrooms. And, and I, did have, I, did, I did used to put a little bit up in my bedroom. We were never allowed it downstairs because my dad hated it. Mm. In fact, he told me when I was very young that he was allergic to it. And I believed him because I was a right, child. Yeah. And I believed him. I just never really questioned this until he was sort of like 15, 16, when I was suddenly like, hang on a second. How can you possibly be allergic to tinsel? There's nothing in it you could be allergic it's to. And he was like, which, there's no materials that are unique to tinsel. Yeah, and he, like, yeah and he was like, yeah, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm not really allergic. I just hate it. <laughs> I, I didn't think you'd believe me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, of course I believed you. I was about four when you first told me. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's I like me. Was, um, uh, the paper decorations, sort of ones that that fold out and then it becomes a. a yeah, stocking. we used to make paper chains. I remember mm. making paper chains when I was younger. I can't remember the last time we did that. It must have been about ten, or something younger even. Yeah, I'm glad you're feeling about the Christmas spirit anyway. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's, it's not. It's, it's taken a while yeah. to kick in. But it's I'm not going to be the same this year. It's... I've got this same CD of Christmas carols that my, um, that my fourth cousin gave me. <laughs> and I've, I've dug it out and started listening That's to that. That's a good idea. I should listen to some Christmas music. That might cheer me up a bit. I like Christmas, you see. No one else I know likes Christmas. Just you and me that like Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, all the rest really of our like friends Christmas. really grumpy and don't like it. Yeah, yeah. They like Halloween better and, and things. And, I do like see, Halloween. I've never been a huge fan of Halloween. Um, it's alright, but it's not. Nah, Christmas is way better. I, think I prefer anyway. Christmas, but I prefer mm, autumn. I like. To I like it when it snows. I like. I love the snow. Too. I don't like. I don't like what we've got at the moment, which is just cold and dreary. No, but a Canadian friend of mine was telling me about how he he really hates the winters here in comparison to in Canada, even though it's much colder in Canada, because the the worst sort of sweet spot is between about one degree and about four degrees, because but it's yes. really cold. Whereas if it's yes, snow, it sort absolutely. of settles on you, especially if it's really cold, because then it doesn't even melt, and then you're sort of fine. The air is quite cold, but you can just wrap up warm, and that's fine. But if it's like drizzly yeah. rain and two degrees... Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I can totally see that. I can totally see Canada being gen- generally nicer, as long as, it, as long as you don't get snowed in, I suppose. It's also because of the Gulf Stream thing. We're further north than most of the bits of Canada where people live, so we get mm. really, really dark yeah. as well. Yeah. Thank goodness for that Gulf Plus, Stream. It's only... Yeah, it's only a couple of weeks till the no, the evenings start getting lighter again, though. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, which we're is doing the worst a big bit of winter, I think. You know, getting dark at like four o'clock. Yeah, that's unpleasant. pretty bad. That's pretty bad. We're doing a big thing on the solstice. Mm. Um, 
because nice. the, the, the people I sort of live with up here are not are not big Christmas people, mm. so they're doing a big thing on the solstice, and then we'll have a sort of a bit more low key thing on Christmas. But it does seem to be a bit of a, a kind of a world concert constant. If it's a bit of the, apart from the bits of the world where they don't really have four seasons like around the equator, but if you have a proper summer and winter, most places seem to have some kind of a booze up. You have to to get through yeah. it, don't you? Really, you just have to. Otherwise, you'd you'd go mad. Mm. Well, madder. Yeah. So it's also sort of because because you have to do it, um, and you end up in order to get in order to do that, you're relying on other people and 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 yourself, and and it's a it's a human constructed thing rather than relying on it being really nice weather or what. So it becomes about togetherness mm. as well, mm-hmm. which I think is yeah. nice as well. What a wonderful socialist christmas message yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should give the you should give the socialist equivalent of the queen's speech <laughs> there, there are other ones aren't there there's like a that I'm sure there are other yeah. leaders of various groups do like like when in america where they have state of the unions everyone always does a response to the state of the there are always yeah. like christmas speeches i'll be perfectly honest with you david i have never ever listened to the queen's speech right so, <laughs> I grew there's up never a thing in my family listening to the queen's speech um, as a child, yeah, and I like, didn't that doesn't realize me. that it was something that not everyone did. I was yeah. really surprised when someone first said that they know what's Queen's speech. I was like, really? It's like not having a tree or not doing presents or something. Which I realize some yeah. people don't do those things either. But, um, but no, it's yeah. actually much less common. Than you would I think, it was, if you, a lot of given everything else about my family, you would think that we would, but we never did. Mm. It's just kind of yeah. it comes on about when you've finished with Christmas dinner, and it's on BBC mm. One as well. So if you've got well, you never big ones for TV on Christmas. And that might be yeah, why we never did particularly watch the Queen's Speech because my, my family weren't that keen on on TV at Christmas. We would sometimes watch the Doctor Who Christmas special. That'd be about it. Right. Uh, we never big one for either. Christmas films or anything like that. Just analysing it now, I think what happened because it would always be. Well, I grew up. It was with my parents and my mum's parents. So my mum's whole side of the family would sort of congregate at our house in the morning. So you get mm-hmm. all the cousins and everything come round in the morning. Mm-hmm. Then as that would die down you then have a sort of a little break and then christmas dinner stuff and then by about three o'clock which is when the queen's speech comes on that's the moment when you sort of hit a bit of a lull because you've just had a big amount of food and you've been interacting with all kinds of people so you're a bit tired but you haven't got into the kind of settle into the evening sort of it's getting dark again where you might watch a film or something so there's nothing really in that moment everyone just sort of collapses on, on sofas yeah and also you know, as, as a sort of fig leaf over the fact that we're all falling asleep, put the Queen's speech on. <laughs> and pretend to watch it. Yeah. Listen to what she has to say. Bless her. And it's always, I, I, find, uh. I find it's always quite a, a kind of broad-based, um, but quite sort of a bit sentimental, a bit Christmassy, just generally well-written speech. It's always just mm. sum up the year. Let's look forward to next year. Yeah. That's broadly all it says. This year's one's going to be interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm going to go and check my bread again. And then nice. when we come back, we should probably start the politics. <laughs> Rather than just talking about the Queen's speech for an hour. Yeah. I mean, we can do that if you like. I don't think I don't think our regular audience would enjoy it. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm giving away the fact that I've got this slightly sort of um, conservative element. To, to we both life. come from quite conservative households. Yeah. I think that's that's something that's we have in common. I'm a, I'm we, still we a come from a sort of... Incidentally. <laughs> I do think there shouldn't be a yes, Queen's likewise. speech. Yes, likewise. shouldn't be a Queen. But still, I do actually but, quite like the Queen's Speech. Yeah, I'm just willing to yeah. give up, give right. it up in exchange for 
having an equal society. <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to go and check on my brother. Back in a sec. have returned. Nice. The bread is out of the oven. I have acquired a cup of coffee. I have said hello to my girlfriend who has just returned from dropping off a bottle. So I am feeling re-energized and ready to go. Ready to talk about some very, very exciting Yeah. Let's talk about Brexit! It's been a while since we've really talked about it. Back in the God. Back in the day when when the first sort of burst of these came out before the before the great the great gap, it was all the time and now yeah. it's <laughs> coronavirus and everything sort of driven it out. But yeah, so Brexit, um, it's gonna happen. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely gonna happen. Yeah, I mean it has happened. They voted. They, yeah. they voted for it. What did they do that for? Yeah, I must say that. I'm not particularly committed to having Britain be in the EU. I don't mind particularly the fact that we're leaving. It's not the bit that annoys me. Um, but I, w- I don't particularly want us to leave either. The reason why I voted Remain four years ago was to avoid these four years of not being able to talk about anything else. <laughs> yeah. And I have been and proved it's also, right about that. Yeah. It's, it's also the, the nature of our leaving, isn't it, really? It's the... Oh yeah, totally. It's the leaving yeah. under a Tory government so, rather than under. Yeah, we de- leaving definitely could cause very, very bad things to happen, which is why we have to talk about it. But it doesn't actually yeah. have to. The fact that we are leaving isn't the problem in and of itself. I, I really wouldn't. Not care necessarily. If it, if it wasn't for the fact. That yeah. So, anyway, um, for those who don't know, which is probably blessedly for you, um, there has the transition. Uh, period that was part of the withdrawal agreement um, comes to an end at the end of December. Essentially at midnight on New Year's Day, just as the clocks turn over and we go from 2020 to 2021, we will leave the European Union in practice, which we have already done in theory. Um, If the UK wanted to extend that transition period, which could be done for either a further one or two years, we had to um, basically lodge that request by sometime in June, I think, and Boris Johnson's government elected not to. <laughs> and so now here we are. It's the 9th of December. There's, what, just over 20 days or so until we hit the edge. Any deal that we do strike between the UK and the EU would have to be ratified by the various institutions of the European Union and the constituent countries. So in practice, we have left it really rather late. As we record, um, only a few yeah. hours, right? Well, Boris Johnson's gone to uh, Brussels, or is going to Brussels this evening. I'm not sure whether he's left yet or whatever. But yeah, by the time you hear this, there's likely chance we'll know whether we're getting a deal or not. Mm. We don't. We don't know. What do you think? Well, it, it's it been a running feature of these things, and it has been a running thing of both Boris Johnson's career and general long-term EU policy to leave all negotiations to the last minute. Mm. They're all really into this brinksmanship thing. So 
it would intuitively it would seem like because they left it this late this is what it would look like if they weren't going to get a deal but the thing is this was probably what it was going to this is the most likely way that it would look like if they were going to get a deal as well so really it's very very hard to say I mean I I suppose the argument for is that um, the last time all this was going on a year ago when it was getting the withdrawal agreement sorted um or it, it, it came right down to the wire and then Boris Johnson sort of right at the last minute reneged on his promise not to put a border in the Irish Sea presented this concession to the EU as if it was sort of a great tr- diplomatic triumph um said he got a deal when everyone said he couldn't even though he only did so by breaking a promise to, that he'd made multiple times and that the Conservatives had put in their manifesto yeah um, and then, for some reason, the media swallowed that. So it's, and it's also the fact that everyone agreed that he'd done brilliantly. These different arrangements that where Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK are separate, separated in, in regulatory terms. So it's like rather than having a backstop where the whole country goes out, that was what the EU initially suggested to Theresa May back in 2017, and the Tories yeah. rejected it. And they they didn't, suggested the backstop. Yeah, the, the EU didn't want the backstop. No. Getting the backstop the was did. actually quite a diplomatic coup for Theresa May. Yes. And Boris Johnson going back on UK that. Yeah. Integral. And it, allowed, it would have allowed us continuing access to the customs union. Yeah, yeah. And, um... So the, the problem but yeah, so, really but given, given the... That, sorry. Um, Theresa May agreed to have the negotiations in two stages. To have the negotiations for the withdrawal agreement and then the negotiations for the future relationship. And the negotiations for the withdrawal agreement was parallel to the negotiations for the political declaration for what they, for their uh, the sort of statement of intent of both sides for what they wanted the trade deal to look like, um, but but not actually have a trade deal, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it, because it's 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 the EU gets everything that it wants in the first stage of the negotiations and then, once that's agreed, we then talk about Britain getting access to the EU trading bloc. So why don't you yeah. agree to these two stages? <laughs> You know where where we have this yeah. withdrawal agreement, then we leave the EU, then we negotiate a trade deal. It's sort of that, that's not a normal. No, way to do it does rather leave us on the back foot, and that's what created the whole situation with the backstop anyway in the first place. Because the yeah. backstop is is for if we don't negotiate a trade deal, then we mm-hmm. fall back on the backstop. But the thing or would, is, or would have been what, had, had really what we should do it. is if we don't negotiate a trade trade deal, we fall back on we haven't finished negotiations yet. Let's carry on talking. That will be the normal yeah. way to negotiate a trade deal. Yeah, but instead they agreed to this process whereby Britain does leave the EU, whether we have finished the negotiations or not, and then we have to deal with this Northern Ireland border issue because we've left the EU. But, but I mean, this is the problem: is that both Theresa May's government and now Boris Johnson's have been so desperate to avoid looking to their base as if they are, you know, lukewarm on Brexit mm. because Brexit has become such a driving issue for much of the Tory base. Well, they've had to. But they feel they can't afford to be nuanced. Mm. They've had. To, they've framed any attempts to inject nuance into the debate as an attempt to steal Brexit or undermine the process or, or you know, obfuscate yeah. or whatever. When it isn't, it's a really important conversation to be had. But no. no. Think any yeah. But they're terrified of the right-wing press. Oh, you're trying to do Brexit in name only or something. Which means that yeah. they now can't, uh, you know, they've, they've hamstrung themselves. Because yeah, they I mean, they, they've, they've hamstrung themselves to a degree. I mean, I do, I do think that even if they hadn't doubled down on the whole Brexit means Brexit, nuance is bad themselves the right-wing press would have done and so they would have still exposed themselves to attack from the right um but i agree they've made it even worse than themselves by sort of going along with that and not trying to 
um, challenge it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, but but in any case, as as, as I was saying, um, the, the fact that Boris Johnson concluded the withdrawal agreement negotiations at the 11th hour by making this big concession and passing it off as a win gives it some likelihood, at least, that he'll do a similar thing this time. So the main sticking points are on fisheries, are on state aid, and are on um, a level of access to the single market versus how much regulation uh, we'd have to participate in. And it's been the British government's position that we should be able to have a Canada-style relationship with the EU, whereby we have... Um, a relatively low level of regulation for some access to the single market, but not loads. Um, whereas the EU have said that because we are a much closer country than Canada, because we do much more trade with the EU than Canada does, the same situations don't apply, and we need to have a greater amount of regulation. And that's that's what the sort of Dominic Cummings wing of the Leave campaign have been focused on, is getting us out from underneath European regulation. But now that he's gone... And given Boris Johnson's penchant for sort of making concessions at the last moment and passing it off as a win, which has worked well for him before, I do wonder whether he might not try a similar strategy this time. It seems just obvious to me that that's, that is the most sensible course of action. Isn't it? Britain is going to have a closer relationship with the EU than Canada does. We border it. <laughs> you know, Canada yeah. has a closer relationship with America than it does with the EU for similar reasons. This, it, <laughs> this is just... Even if we don't conclude it now, that will be the situation Britain will end up in in 25 years when, you know, the long-term yeah. centres of gravity of, of global diplomacy assert themselves. Um, the difference is how bad is the economic yeah. fallout in the meantime. Yeah, in the next five or ten years. And to be clear, even if we get a deal, the kind of deal that Boris Johnson's government would strike is going to be such that the economic fallout is still going to be severe. Mm. You know, we are still talking about a very hard Brexit. I think they will probably but get away no with deal at all would be a catastrophe. Their line is going to be, any economic damage that's caused by Brexit, they're going to blame it on the pandemic. They're going to say... Of course, so, yeah. yeah. That's kind of what happened with 2008, is that there was this financial crisis caused by that. And it was blamed on either Blair-era spending on schools and hospitals, which makes no sense, that's obviously not what caused the financial... Or... Um, <laughs> Uh, poor people claiming too many benefits. Yeah. Or, or all three. Well, well, yeah, usually all three. Indeed. <laughs> um, and this time they've got a ready-made one in the pandemic. Although they will probably yeah. make it about poor people. If they can. As well. Yeah. So this the, time the, they can't blame it on, um, uh, on Labour. No. But they can but, blame the, it on but, the pandemic. I, I think the worry for them is that if, if the vaccines, which are starting to be rolled out as of yesterday, come in as quickly as we're hoping that the economy will start to recover from the coronavirus um, shock and then get hit by the Brexit shock. And it might be the case that because there will be a brief period where it looks like things are getting better before things get worse again, that they might not be able to make that argument as effectively. I don't know. That said, I mean, there was a, a similar thing happened in, after 2008 whereby the, the economic policies of Gordon Brown... Um, had started to bring the UK out of recession yeah. by 2010, and then we went back into recession as soon as the Tories came Very in and true. started implementing austerity, and no one noticed that, so maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's also the the, um, the financial crisis hadn't really particularly hit the quality of public services yet, because, mm. because it doesn't have to, because that's a, that's a political choice. Um, but when George Osborne started the austerity programme, then it starts to seriously cut in people's living um, yeah. beyond just... Increases in unemployment. But I mean, those, those cuts were never 
really a reversed. No. And now Rishi Sunak's talking about a new round. It's um, just ridiculous, because the, the amount of debt we're in and the amount of cuts that have already been done, there is simply no way to cut your way out of it. The, no. The crisis is too big. There's no way to cut your way out of it. I mean, there's no way to cut well, your way out of it anyway. Austerity doesn't work. No. It's not no. even good bourgeois no. economics. I mean, it's nonsense. The thing is, interest rates are so low at the moment, real interest rates, that every £100 the government spends now, they'll only end up paying back about £60 of it um, uh, over the next 30 years because interest rates are so low. And the government is still able to borrow a much lower rate than the general population and most of the money it 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 it, it, it quote unquote borrows it gets from uh it gets from the bank of england anyway um buying its buying guilt gilts and bonds and things so one thing that needs to become common knowledge is that the economy doesn't work like private individual finance your yeah, household balancing of the books is nothing like the treasury balancing the, the that, analogy simply no, and people like laura Koonsberg need to wake up and, and realize that that was so ridiculous. I, I think I know what you're referring to. There's a, there's a clip yeah. of her basically unprompted by a politician. The BBC, is she the political editor? Yes. The political editor of the BBC, unprompted by a politician, just parroting a like, straightforward right-wing propaganda the, on the economy. The nation's credit card is maxed yeah. out, is the quote. The nation doesn't have a credit card, funnily enough. And it's not like, maxed out. The, <laughs> we don't, that's not how anything works. No, I don't think this works. We, we had twice this level of debt when we decided to set up the NHS in the first place. Incredibly expensive thing to do. It's not how and, it works. It's never been and how it works. And, austerity, and austerity didn't lead to lower borrowing. George Osborne <laughs> borrowed more than any chancellor in about 150 years. Because austerity doesn't lead to lower borrowing. Austerity leads to lower living standards. And, and if you do austerity in the way that they did it, where... It was all cuts and no tax rises. It leads to disproportionate in fact, effects on the poor. Cuts and tax cuts. They cut the top of yeah. the tax at the same yeah. time. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the nation tightening its belt. That is class war. Yeah. That's, that's it's just, not even austerity, yeah. really. Because real austerity would involve tax rises and spending cuts at the same time. That's the kind of thing that people like Hayek, um, who the Tories claim to sort of be drawing on, or at least did back in the 80s when they had a pseudo-intellectual basis for what yeah. they were doing. Um, people like Hayek would, would say you should cut spending and raise taxes at the same time um, to get out of a recession, um, which is the complete opposite of what um, Keynesian economics tells you. Um, and Keynes was right uh, well, <laughs> about almost everything. When Britain had um, the highest debt in its history immediately after the, the sort of triple shock of the First World War, the Great Depression, and the Second World War, and the country was literally in ruin. Um, we adopted a broadly Keynesian approach of lots and yeah. lots of public spending. Um, and it is the only time in British history when we have significantly yeah. reduced our debt by that amount. And the argument is if yeah. we're in a similar situation to that now, we should do that again. <laughs> At the very least, we should do that again. Because it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was of better than austerity. Around, but, yeah, I mean, a certain amount of the economic damage caused by the coronavirus will naturally, I think, resolve itself. But it will leave long, deep scars. Yeah, certainly. Um, unemployment will come down after a little while, but it won't come down all the way to what it was before. No. Well, we were in before was a bubble. After 2008, the economy never really actually. There was just a certain amount of papering over the cracks and, and using huge amounts of state intervention to reinflate the financial system, sector. Um, 
and it was going to come crashing down at some point. Anyway, this has just made it happen all in one go. It's not just I mean, an pro- productivity. Shock, but the economy yeah. was already... I mean, productivity and output has been extremely low, basically flat, for the last 20 years. Mm. You know, long before 2008, even. Um, we don't, we, we, we're not making anything. All the growth, quote-unquote, that we see in GDP figures is entirely based on... Um, on, on finan- financial speculation and things like that, and, and, and rentier capitalism as well. Mm. Um, and even those sectors are going to be hit hard, I think, now. Yeah, very much so. Um, and also, in, yeah. in Britain specifically, most Western countries over the last 10 years, wages have been flat. But in Britain, they've gone down significantly. Um, the, the, I think the only country where wages have dropped over the last 10 years more than Britain mm. is Greece, which it does rather. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It, it, I think you can read a lot of the, the sort of political turmoil of the last 10 years as being a result of the, the fact that the working class across the West have been whacked really fucking hard. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the British working class and the Greek working class have been hit harder than most, you would expect them to do something slightly weirder. And they both have. We've had Brexit and the Syriza. Oh, I remember the Syriza moment. I was so hopeful. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that ended up going interestingly. I mean, it's the only instance of, this, uh. of, the, of the sort of... Um, of the post-crisis new left that um, that successfully took state power. You, you had a few of these movements around the world. You had Corbyn in Britain, you had Bernie Sanders in America, you had Podemos in Spain, Mélenchon in, in France, and you had Syriza in Greece. Mm-hmm. Greece was the only one where they actually took power. Um, but because it's a relatively small country in the Eurozone, they were then just crushed by the, yeah. by the EU. TLDR. I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but we don't really have time to go into of that course. now. <laughs> We've come some way from from. Do we think we could get a Brexit uh, post Brexit trade deal or not? Yeah. But that's all right. I think we. Yeah. I think our sort of um, uh, the reason we drifted so much is that um, Brexit. It was never really about Brexit. It was about. But all Brexit of means stuff. Brexit, yeah, David. That's the thing. Surely, that's what's so annoying about that <laughs> slogan is that it. it no, it doesn't. Brexit it really doesn't didn't. Brexit. No, Brexit no one cared about the EU stuff. before the EU referendum campaign. Ooh. Even even given that papers like The Sun and The Telegraph had spent the last 30 years trying to whip up anti-EU hatred, in 2014, no one gave a shit about the yeah. EU. It never came anywhere near the top of people's issue lists when they were polled on it by Ipsos Mori and companies like that. No one cared. Absolutely no one. Well, the first thing that made me care about the EU was the Greek um, debt crisis and the solution. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Likewise. And that's kind of... Do you know, if, if the Brexit referendum had been a few months earlier, I probably would have... I was... I, I, yeah, I was in a similar position where I was... I certainly sort of 2014, 15, yeah. I was much, 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 much less certain of how, how I would vote. When obviously, when the by the time the referendum eventually came around, I'd settled on Remain. But yeah, hmm. yeah. Well, there's basically I oppose Brexit more than I oppose the EU, but I do actually oppose both. <laughs> Quite. But Brexit hadn't really formed as a thing in no. 2014, 2015. Yeah, people were still Brexiters rather than Brexiteers. Do you remember when that that second yeah. E got added in? That was that yeah. was the real moment when things sort of crystallised. I think. Well, it's it's the second step beyond Brexit being actually a. a a sort of uh, reference to Grexit, which was originally yeah. the idea that Greece yeah. might be the eurozone. There were loads of them as well. There was there was going to be there was going to be Frexit and d- d- Polexit and all sorts. But Grexit yeah. was the only other yeah. one that might have happened. I don't know what. Uh, let's not go into the distance too long and too yeah, irrelevant to what we're supposed to be talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think basically, I think 
I think Boris Johnson will pull a pull the same trick he did last time and get a deal at the last moment, which will be pretty bad, but will at least stop us crashing out completely. And he'll have to make a bunch of concessions to do it, but he'll pass it off as a win, and the right wing press will back him. Well, apart from there'll be concessions maybe, from his position, but I don't think they would actually be particularly bad things for Britain. You know, if we have to maintain similar standards to the EU on food safety and environmental standards, rather than being able to set our own, I don't care. You know? Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. perfectly sanguine about that. I mean, the state aid thing I actually would like to be able to do more of. The That's state aid true. thing is the one sort of... The thing is... Is the one kind of Britain, potentially left-wing benefit. Yeah, but Britain... Potentially, has, depending this, on how it's they used. They do have state aid boundaries in the, in the EU treaties, but they are quite a lot higher than anything any British government has done since we joined the EU. We could yes, do yes. way more than we already do yeah. without France getting does near the state. Loads more. So I don't really know why the Tories are making such a song and dance about it when they've been in power for, you know, several decades of the time when the state aid rules have been enforced, and they haven't even done half of what you're allowed. Your I think part of it is that I think part of it is that it's a particular wing of the Conservative Party that is exercised by state aid, and it's the wing that has sort of people like Don Cummings in it, mm. uh, and they haven't been in power. Um, really, except during the sort of brief period since Boris Very Johnson recently, yeah. got in, yeah, um, I think that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, for France, France frequently breaks the state aid rules anyway. That's true. Like they, they, either they just pay a little fine and they don't care because they just break it again next year. Or they, they make more money from breaking it than they have to pay in the fine, and they don't care. <laughs> it's a bit like the immigration thing. The immigration was a massive thing in the Brexit, um, but also if you're not in the Schengen area. EU member states do actually have quite a lot of latitude to restrict immigration, um, and Britain mm. didn't particularly use it that no. much. No. Um, because immigration's good for the country, and behind closed doors, when they're not trying to rile up their base to vote against their own interests, the Tories know that, that Britain's got an aging population yeah. and, a, and, and needs immigration to, do economic, to have economic growth, basically. Yeah. I mean, this is the long-term yeah. problem with immigration, um, is more a matter of the countries of the global north with a demographic problem are not going to be able to get enough immigration in the future because there's not going to be enough places to have people immigrating from. Right? As, as the global south continues mm. to develop, as India and China move more into, even further into the middle-income countries as they, as they already are, um, and Africa begins to move into where India and China are now, immigration... I mean, I, okay, I won't say that because I'm not quite sure if that's true. I'll have to look it up later. But um, it is definitely the case that by the middle and the end of this century, you could totally see immigration I, yeah people. definitely especially um, as because um, the point is it's not just immigration it's immigration of young people immigrants tend to be much mm. younger than the average age of um of global north country and as demographic aging progresses in the global south they will they will stop being so disproportionately younger than mm. the global so it's not just a matter of there being lower immigration it's a matter of the average age of an immigrant will start rising as well. So it will help with demographic aging. It's not a matter of, yeah. oh dear, the EU is making us take too many, many immigrants. It's a matter of immigration is the only thing keeping this society alive. Well, no, immigration, <laughs> immigration hasn't dropped. Well, yeah. Immigration from the EU has fallen since we quote-unquote left the EU. But it's been matched by a rise in, in extra EU immigration, and that will continue. I mean, I think, I think another thing that will happen over the next few decades is that you're right immigration from places like china and india um will come down immigration from african countries will probably go up though because african countries are moving into um a lot of african countries are moving into the same kind of economic um stage of their economic development that india and china have been for the last few decades 
Um, so I think you'll probably start to see a lot more immigration from sub-Saharan Africa in particular, we can which the, the problem, will bring a very different character The problem with African development is to the that they immigration. Have, the, the reason why India and China have been able to do that is because they ha- they're basically because they're so big, they're able to achieve a certain amount of independence from from even neo-colonial elements of global capitalism, especially China. Um, so the, the forces which keep the global south underdeveloped have lost a certain amount of their grip, particularly in China. And Africa doesn't have any political institutions that are able to wield as much might as the Chinese state. For, nothing no, but the, I mean, the, if you look at population trajectories, by the end of this century, something like six of the ten largest cities in the world will be in sub-Saharan Africa. And so I think that what's going to happen is, as those cities grow, there's going to be political turmoil in those countries, probably more even than we've seen in the past half century. And that's going to yeah. be scary. There, I mean, it's already, it's already happening now in Ethiopia, Eritrea, yeah, yeah, totally. places like that. But once they come out of the other side of that, then they'll be in more of a situation like China is. Yeah, that's true. I think that... um, assuming, of course, they can throw off China itself, oh, which well, is true, pouring yeah. a lot of money into particularly East Africa. But we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say. Because is China um, analogous to Western neocolonialism? Or is it analogous to something like the Marshall Plan? Because they are putting a lot of direct foreign investment into things that actually do develop the country. Mm. But they are building mm. schools and hospitals and ports and infrastructure and, and you know, internet infrastructure. It's hard to say. Yeah, Probably roads. Between, right? Because the yeah. Marshall Plan was specifically about having Western Europe be able to be a bulwark against the Soviet Union. China's not really doing anything like that. Um, so it is more about having just Chinese influence rather than developing a set of relatively independent states in between them. Anyway, um, We'll see, I suppose. No, I mean, I mean, um, neither am I, but that's what I can see happening yeah. quite likely. Something I see over the next spoken about quite a lot. Um, well, not quite a lot, but occasionally is uh, groups of African countries forming supranational organisations, which are modelled on the mm-hmm. EU. Something like um, sort of South Sudan, Kenya, Tanzania, and a few of the other smaller countries around them forming one big East African bloc, and that would be But they already have a lot of institutions like that. I mean, there's the African Union, first of all, but that's very internally divided. But it's possible that it it might come to pass, because there there is already a certain amount of institutional groundwork for this kind of thing. And there is a history of proper independence. It's it's not all just them being unable to shake off. There's a long history of very serious resistance. I could totally see Mm. being more successful if they get some kind of um, development. I definitely think it will happen. Yeah. yeah. I think anyway, it will that happen is a bit of a tangent. Yeah. And also, there are countries that yeah. Indonesia's got nearly the same. Sorry, I don't mean Indonesia. I mean Nigeria has got mm. the same population. Well, Indonesia is another one. I mean, if, if we want to look outside Africa, that's in the same similar position yeah. where it has a huge population and is moving into that kind of. Well, the current. What, what is currently the sort of the BRICS mm-hmm. sort of countries. Indonesia, like places like Nigeria is moving into that sort of level, uh, you know, as it were. Um, but that, that is actually another one where I think we could, that Indonesia might emerge as something of a regional power over the next century. That's totally possible, yeah. I mean, it's an yeah. enormous it's, country. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's massive. Nearly Two, half a billion. 200 and something million people. And 
and the, the largest the largest Muslim majority country in the world, which people don't people think about yeah, yeah. Islam as being a Middle Eastern phenomenon. Understandably, I suppose, because that's where it comes from. But but Indonesia is Muslim majority, though the substantial Buddhist minority. I think. I know the country but, with um, the second largest number of Muslims after Indonesia is India. It's not even a Muslim majority country. It's just that's mm. how big India is. <laughs> But yeah, India is big. Let's talk about India, shall we? Let's talk about India. Because, because, oh, no, yeah, hooray! Yeah, yeah. Segue. It was a long was tangent, but it actually landed somewhere. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. Things have been <laughs> happening in India lately. Um, so, back in September, um, the Indian government decided to implement three new laws concerning farming. These have been floating around for a while, actually, but they were they were passed as formal, formal acts uh, in sort of mid September. Um, essentially, what these do is they open up the farming sector in India um, to more capitalist competition. So previously, um, state uh, bodies were responsible for a lot of buying and selling of agricultural produce they would set minimum prices and um farmers would sell directly to uh, things called the mandis um these new acts are intended to open up that system to more corporate involvement um which many farmers believe is designed to phase out the mandi system which although they have had their own complaints about that system for some decades now they don't want it to be replaced by uh, you know, just open season capitalism, basically. So, um, some protests sort of started in August uh, when these bills were sort of going through, and then there was a march on uh, Delhi in on the twenty fifth of November, uh, which was met by police. Um, using tear gas, water cannons, various other things. Um, what then happened was on the 26th of November, uh, various labour unions uh, called a solidarity general strike with the farming unions, um, and numerous Indian states were brought to a complete standstill. And things have kept going from there to the point where... In India, the agricultural sector is a very, very large sector of overall labour. So yes. Like 40% of Indian workers are agricultural so yeah let, yeah um, urban workers and and agricultural workers are yeah. both very um sectors and so the, yeah the, the the nationwide general strike um which took place on the 26th of november involved approximately 250 million people it's insane um which is almost certainly the largest strike in history mm. um and protests have essentially continued since then so um the 30th of november Something about something like uh, two to three hundred thousand uh, protesting farmers were converging around Delhi. Um, there are f- different. There are there are five hundred farming unions involved across the the country. Um, as I said, uh, n- non farming unions are also called solidarity strikes. Uh, transport unions representing fourteen million transport workers have come out in support of the farmers and have basically ground um, distribution to a halt. Uh, in large segments of the country. Um, so the, the, the strike started in the Punjab, uh, which is the sort of northwestern region bordering uh, 
bordering Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, where there are a lot of Muslims, there are also a lot of Sikhs. That's where the Sikhs are from, is, is Punjab. Yes. Um, so it started there, but but it's spread out now. There's something like five or six different states who have been essentially brought to a standstill, and the protest is still ongoing. Um, yeah, it's quite something. There have been solidarity protests around the world in areas with large yes. populations. Yes, that's Britain. also true, yeah. Um, outside the Indian Embassy mm. in, in London, uh, also in America, I think, uh, outside uh, consulates in Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, New York, various other places. It's, It's been quite something. The media, certainly in this country and from what I've been able to tell from uh, social media, also in America, particularly in America, has been undercovering, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> this pretty momentous, uh, pretty momentous event, as you might expect. Um, possibly because a lot of the protests involve people carrying flags covered in uh, hammers and sickles and wearing a lot of red. There was a brilliant uh, clip I saw of um, some people riding an elephant down a street, waving a uh, hammer and sickle flag from the top, which mwah, the wild. Indians really get spectacle. We need to we need to up our fucking game in this country, yeah. God. Um, yeah, so I think it's unsurprising that Western governments and media aren't um, uh, aren't on board with this, to say the least, because <laughs> they're avatars of global capital, and this is a process against. Cause it, it, I, I'm not an expert on Indian politics, but my understanding of it is that um, Modi's the Prime Minister's um, programme has been a sort of a classic combo of um, neoliberal globalisation and Hindu nationalism. It's a yeah. cultural reactionary as a sort of feed leaf over the top of the most um, full-blown submission to the logic of the global market that you could have. And this is opening the agricultural system up into that as part of this longer-term programme. And it's been the one which has really sparked the most consistent, well-organised yeah. resistance. Which is good. Yes, I mean the the degree to which public and private sector workers have both come out, the degree to which there has been crossover between different industries, obviously the agricultural industry, but also transport, uh, coal industry. Eighty percent of coal production has been affected. Hmm. Uh, electricity workers uh, have also come out because there, there was an electricity ordinance passed um, passed earlier this year, which is one of the key demands, uh, uh, as well as the new farming uh laws for abolishment Abli- abolishment abolition mm. i think abolishment is also technically okay but abolition better um so yeah that's um that's another one of the key demands uh from the farmers the workers sort of the sort of urban workers are also um demanding uh, additional things um including uh direct cash transfers to uh, poor families to help with obviously the pandemic um, and uh, they're demanding a 10 kilogram free grain ration um, ex- expansion of employment guarantees and uh, withdrawal of anti-union and anti-worker legislation um, so it's a pretty comprehensive sort of labor rights movement across various industries I would say it's sort of the character of it they're certainly not going so far for sort of more constitutional or, or or kind of other kinds of political um, reforms, although we'll see. But at the moment, it's 
it's a pretty broad-based um, demand for workers' rights and. It's interesting to see where this goes in the in the sense in the um, uh, in the world of party politics if it if it causes an upset there because my understanding of Indian politics is that basically since independence uh, the parliament has been dominated by the Indian National Congress um, mm-hmm. until the BJP uh, yeah. Narendra Modi. Um, so the question is if you can get a quarter of a billion people <laughs> striking on a pretty classic labour rights um, basis across all different sectors of the economy. I mean. It definitely raises the question of whether you could have... Well, the Indian National Congress backed the strike. Well, that's good. As has the Communist Party. Yes. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, there was also... Um, I also read that the... the uh, There was a um, a minister in uh, the Delhi government, the, the, the government of Delhi itself, Local. who was placed under house arrest by the central government because um, the police in Delhi... Uh, are under the federal jurisdiction because it's the capital, uh, not the jurisdiction of the city government. Um, he was essentially placed under house arrest because he was going to go join the strike, and they they, they didn't want that particular uh, bad publicity of 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 one of the sort of key people in the Delhi city government uh, joining the strike. So it does look as if um, the sort of political, the uh, sort of more more sort of formal uh, party political. Um, Groupings have joined into it to some extent, at least. Uh, Chief Minister of Punjab apparently is um, has backed the strike as well. Unsurprisingly, as I think most of Punjab is is marching. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it... interesting to see the extent to which, although I think it is from what I've seen, fairly um, uh, culturally pluralist. This movement: there are, there are Sikhs, mm. there are Hindus, there are Muslims. There's, there's, there's people from all sections of Indian society. Um, Joining in with this in a spirit of solidarity, as as opposed yes. to a national. It does seem to government. be that way, um, so far as I can tell. I haven't. It's interesting. It's a thought that's just occurred to me, which is that um, it's been a big problem for democracy as an idea in the twenty first century that China has been very successful in developing economically precisely on the basis of the fact that it um, doesn't have the same uh, political system as Western. Western countries seem to be particularly unable to basically get anything done. <laughs> Um, whereas China is very clearly able to get lots of things done. And so if you're a developing country, democracy looks less attractive. But India is, an, is another... It's always kind of ignored in these debates because it's, it's a country which is developing roughly the same um, sort of area of... I mean, I mean, it's about as developed as China and growing at a similar speed. Um, but it's a democratic country. And it occurs to me that this kind of thing could not happen in China. Right, you would not get a quarter of a billion people striking against the government in China if it did something that was unpopular. <laughs> they don't have independent media. They don't have, um, you know, for one thing, it'd just be illegal. I mean, I think quite sure to what extent this is illegal in India, but it, they can't crack down on it in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So this is a, I suppose it's a good moment for democracy. Um, it's showing that the Indian constitutional system of a free and open society, such as it is, I mean, no, no more or less than yeah. Britain or America, um, uh, has very very serious advantages to it over um the, the, yeah it, it weakens the uh, the very worrying argument which previously had been very strong that democracy seemed to be not particularly effective at doing anything mm-hmm. that i see what you're saying yeah definitely <sighs> yeah i mean because i think particularly what's been going on in america you know um with the way their democratic political system has somewhat 
fail. Mm. Uh, I mean, America's better democracy now, anyway. Quite, yeah. But then, I mean, it's Britain, so... <laughs> yeah, it's all. I think we've got more say. of a claim to it than they do, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. not much. <laughs> yeah, we don't have we don't have the. Oh, it's weird. We don't have we don't have the Senate and the Electoral College and things like that, which are fundamentally anti-democratic. Yeah. We do have the House of Lords, and we have a sovereign. Party. Yes, but the House of Lords can't block legislation anymore. They can only delay yes. it. Although they can, therefore, functionally block legislation that's introduced in the last year of the Parliament because. When the parliament ends, all the legislation currently in process is dropped, and you have to reintroduce it again. So they kind of can block some legislation if they want. And also, we have a Labour Party, which we do have a Labour Party of sorts, democratic party and more democratic. It's more democratic than democratic. Well, yeah. in, in most ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the democratic parties in America aren't really parties. No, right? They're called parties, but they aren't really. You don't. You're not They're a really member of the democratic of the party. Process. You know, they are yeah. institutions as much a part of the American state as they are parties running in the in American elections. Yeah. I mean, so basically, they privatized part of the actual electoral system. Itself. Essentially, yes. <laughs> they have they have a which I mean, they I, have, I, a bit like in France, their presidential elections have two rounds, where you have you know loads of candidates from all kinds of different parties run, and usually four or five different parties are very close to each other, and then the top two go into a runoff election uh, about a week later. Mm-hmm. In America, they have a similar system where they have the primary system. And then the actual presidential election, where you basically only have two candidates, it's just that they've privatised mm-hmm. the first part of that process. Yeah, that is interesting, actually. So I haven't thought of it in quite that way, but yeah. Except in, I mean, in some states they do have jungle primaries; they call them, actually. where anyone, everyone can run all at once. Which they have in Georgia, which is one of the they have in Georgia for special elections, which is why we we're ending up with two two runoffs in January. But I think maybe we'll talk about that. Mm. There is also a bit closer to time that. And this might segue into another one of our stories. Um, parties in Britain have a lot more, or at least expect to have a lot more control over their members than American parties do over their registered supporters. In America, yeah. you can say openly, you know, Justice Democrats founded themselves explicitly on the mission of a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. That was their words. Yep. Momentum has never said anything a tenth of that aggressive about the Labour Party. No. Because they couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because they are they are organisations you are a member of, mm. rather than sort of lists of candidates you sign up to support, which is more what the Democratic Party is. Um, I mean, there are plenty of people in in uh, in America who are registered as Democrats or Republicans, but consistently vote for the other party because they they registered as a Democrat or a Republican thirty years ago when they first voted, and the parties have changed quite a lot since then. Yeah, very true. There are many um, um, primaries where you can. Vote in the primary. Yeah. Even if you're there are even some primaries where you can vote in the primary, even if you're registered for the other party. Oh, yeah, indeed. There are less of those, but there are a couple. This is why I think the um, the Labour really should have got open primaries. Oh, not open primaries, open selection, but similar to a primary. Mm. Um, and the compromise of the trigger ballot that, that ended up happening yeah. is really just not adequate. I agree. The trigger ballots require you to have a negative campaign. You have to say if there's a sitting MP or a sit or a already um, selected candidate, you have to explain why you think they're not fit for the job before you're even then allowed to have an, a new choice. Mm. Whereas with a primary system, in order to primary someone, you don't need to say they're not they're unfit for this job. All you have to say is I have someone that I think yes. is better. So it creates a more positive yeah. campaign. And it, cre- it would create more engagement, I think, with the, with the party process as well. Mm. I think there's a lot of disengagement even within the membership of the Labour Party with Labour Party politics. Totally. Because... Yeah. Because, you know, unless you're one of these people that turns up to the CLP meetings every week or every month or whatever it is, you know, you you really don't have that much engagement 
with the party itself, except when it comes time to vote for the leader or the NEC, which, again, most people don't... ban from discussing the most, you know, uh, <laughs> but, the top issues yeah, of the day. Yeah, yeah. So that's been happening. Hmm. What do you, you, you... You said you had some, some thoughts on... Some more thoughts on this... <laughs> long-running issue okay. and i i mostly just love hearing you rant about it because you you were so you were so willing to give starborough a chance and you've you've come <laughs> so you've you've done such a 180 that i just i love to hear it so yeah. go on rant i do <laughs> I, I, I have heard a quite convincing argument that what they've been doing to both the members and to uh, actually to jeremy corbyn uh, is actually illegal that, that if you took them to the High Court about it, that there's a strong chance it, um, you could get an injunction against the Labour Party where they would have to mm-hmm. reinstate the work. Because it's against Labour Party rules. <laughs> because um, because the NEC already um, cleared it, right? You, you can't be punished twice for the same thing. And the WHIP, the WHIP's office, and the leadership and the leadership's office don't have the authority to... They do have the ability to... Uh, to control who has the whip, but they don't have the ability to overrule the NEC on disciplinary matters, no. right? And everyone knows, and it would be, uh, they would have a, the, Corbyn would have a very strong case to make to the court that this is obviously the same thing. It's, he's not being suspended for something different from the PLP as he was yes. in the party. It's yes. obviously the same thing. And, a, uh, and there is a general principle in, in English law that a general power cannot override a specific one. Right, yeah. So the Labour Party can't, the, la- the, the Labour leadership can't use its general power to suspend if the more specific um, uh, part of the party, which is the, 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 the disciplinary committee, specifically looking into allegations of anti-Semitism, has already issued a judgment. It does seem to be pretty obvious that... So that the Labour disciplinary process... Is well, that's what the EHRC report was saying. <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous and no one should be put through this process until it's been thoroughly overhauled. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, of course, the Kirsten didn't, didn't like that but bit. Such a is, there is a certain <laughs> amount of nominal independence to the process because it's supposed to be the NEC, not the leadership that decides on disciplinary care. Um, well, according to the HRC, the General Secretary's Office is a political organ, so it shouldn't be involved either. So that's already against the HRC um, rules. The fact yes. that David, because the leadership were claiming, oh no, no, it wasn't me, Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition, who uh, uh, who did it. That would be uh, a political intervention. It was the General Secretary. But the HRC report says that the General Secretary's Office is a political organ as well, and so it shouldn't be interfering either. But anyway, mm. that's beside the point. Um, Not entirely. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the point. I was going to. Oh dear. What were we just talking we were about? Talking about taking it to the High Court and yeah. double jeopardy and um, things like that. Oh no yeah, okay. I know the point. I'm sorry. Um, oh, okay. So Great. the NEC panel that was selected was supposed to be anonymous, but it was leaked who was on it. Mm. <laughs> Almost certainly by um, someone bloody cloak and dagger nonsense going on so it was probably yeah. someone who was aligned with the leadership leaked the panel in order to try to discredit the process because it's supposed to be informal so they're trying to muddy the waters by doing something that they're supposed to not be allowed to do which is to leak the members of the panel from the press but all it did was reveal the fact that it wasn't a Corbynite panel that it was a fairly well um, uh, uh, factionally balanced group including quite a lot of Starmer allies and people see- yes. who I previously would have thought of as being significantly to the right of stuff um and that it was a unanimous decision, right? And it's not just the NEC that makes the decision. It's the NEC makes the decision 
it's not only cloak and dagger, it's also incredibly boring and bureaucratic. It's not just the it's not just the NEC <laughs> the National Executive Committee that makes the decision. They make it on the advice of the governance and legal union. So the fact that it was a unanimous decision, even by the significant number of Starmer allies and people figures from the right of the party, makes and the fact that they do it on the advice of the party lawyers makes me think that they only did that and that they cleared Corbyn because it was clear to them and their advice from the lawyers was that they had no case, that he'd obviously not broken any party rules, and that if they did try to expel him, then he would be able to sue them. So Absolutely. that also says to me that he almost certainly does have a very strong case. So yeah, well, I, really I, hope I, I tend to agree. But you, you said at the start of that that you also think that... So the other thing that's been happening is that CLP... Mem- right. various constituency Labour parties around the country have been bringing motions in support of Jeremy Corbyn and those people have been either shut down by their own CLP chairs if those CLP chairs are following the, the uh, instructions of the General Secretary or in cases where the CLP chairs have allowed the motions to go forward the CLP chairs themselves have been suspended by the Central Party. Mm. Now you intimated that you thought that they would have a case as okay. well. So originally, um, this has happened twice now for two different reasons. It's, it's a little bit convoluted. But when he was, when Corbyn was suspended from the party, um, a, an email was sent round to all the CLP heads, saying um, you're not allowed to discuss this because you can't discuss an ongoing disciplinary case. That's in the party rules, which it is. Um, mm-hmm. But it's such a controversial case and such an obviously political case that. What a lot of people were wanting to say at CLPs and past motions saying was that this is obviously not actually a disciplinary case, it's political. And so there's an <laughs> argument for saying that. There is also a strong argument for saying, if you're not allowed to comment on a ongoing disciplinary case, then why does the party leadership get to go on Newsnight and speak to the Sun newspaper and the BBC and whatever every single day and say, we think this is the right move, he should be suspended? Why are they allowed to give an opinion? on whether it was mm-hmm. a good idea or not, but ordinary party members aren't because you're not allowed to comment on an ongoing disciplinary case. Either you are or you aren't. You can't have mm-hmm. some members of the party have more rights than others to comment on what's going on. Especially when the ERC, EHRC report itself explicitly states that you are allowed to comment um, on internal party affairs, including on the extent of anti-Semitism within the party. It explicitly says that that is an Article 10 human right. That's what the EHRC report says, which this is all supposed mm-hmm. to be about. But anyway, uh, that was my caveat. That was supposed to be my caveat of saying they actually do have a case in that, in that sense. Because you are, it is in the party rules that you're not allowed to comment on an ongoing disciplinary case. But the NEC reinstated Corbyn's membership of the party. That was the end of the disciplinary case. So at that point, you are then allowed to comment on Withdrawing the whip is not a disciplinary matter. You are allowed to comment on it. That's not in the party rules. But they still sent around another letter saying you're still not allowed to comment on it. But then they came out with some... But they didn't really say what party rule it was actually supposed to be against. There's no real... um, There's no party rule against that. What they said was that commenting on this itself contributes to an anti-Semitic atmosphere that makes Jewish members feel uncomfortable. And you therefore are not allowed to even comment on it. That, I have been told, is legally questionable. Right? Because it's such an obviously political case. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, Yeah, I mean... That's just a basic freedom of speech question, isn't it? Um, to say that just simply commenting on on Jeremy Corbyn having the whip withdrawn is itself contributing to an anti-Semitic atmosphere is such a bold claim. Any lawyer with, you know, half a brain and a good cup of coffee that morning could tear that apart, right? Yeah. It's just not true. Or if it is true, then, I mean... Uh, <laughs> 
what you know <laughs> we might as well pack up and go home you know like if, if you can't you know free speech is done for right yeah. like oh, I mean, also just uh, compare this to the the sheer sort of blind eye attitude that the party leadership has turned to other to anti-black racism that they just tolerate in the party <laughs> to transphobia that they just tolerate I mean, this yeah. is so obviously not yeah. an equality no. matter no. absolutely yeah yeah, I mean, if they, if they were going after, uh, if they were going after uh, Rosie Duffield with the same amount of vigor as they've been going after Jeremy Corbyn, then I might give them the benefit of the doubt. But <laughs> they're clearly not because they don't actually care about making members of minorities feel safe in the Labour Party. What they care about is being seen to act in a way even which if, is contrary to the way Jeremy Corbyn ran the party if it so that an they analogous can... situation if she'd been suspended from the party then found by the by the by an independent disciplinary process to have not actually broken any specific rules been reinstated and then the leadership had intervened to kick her out again I might support that but I, what I wouldn't say is that someone saying that that is against party rules is now to be ruled out of order you're not even allowed to have that conversation mm. because it's against equality's yeah. law <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, I think uh, there. I have an instinctive resistance to the idea of making an obviously political matter into a procedural matter, but I do think that the party leadership is kind of acting not legally here. So we kind of do yeah. have to take it to court. No, absolutely, yeah. entirely fair. Um. Say, oh yes. Um. So the fact that their legal case is quite flimsy, but they're able to do this anyway because they control all the institutions of the party, and then. Angela Rayner can go on uh, up on a stage and say that she'll suspend thousands upon thousands of... All of this together seems to me pretty obviously to be an attempt at intimidation. It's not an attempt to enforce party rules in a fair way. It's just really, really trying to intimidate anyone who doesn't agree with the leadership on this into I am so disappointed with Angela Rayner. Yeah. I mean, Keir Starmer, really I never had that much faith in. So I was willing to give him a chance. I was willing to give him a chance. I really didn't think that even in the worst no, case that he... I think that's that. probably fair. But Angela Rayner, I mean, yes, she's she's a member of the Tribune group, not the socialist campaign group, mm. right? So she is technically speaking on the soft left rather than the hard left, if you want to draw that line. But she is pretty left-wing member of the Tribune group. Yeah. Um, she's obviously very close friends with with um, Rebecca Long Bailey. Yeah, and she when she came into office as deputy leader, she picked her suite of sort of secretaries from some pretty left-wing members of the parliamentary labor party uh, i think they were there were there was like two of them were from the campaign group and two of them from from the sort of the left of the tribune group so i had some fairly high hopes that she would be a moderating influence on any rightward drift that starmer might want to implement i don't understand why i think is the thing because i i don't understand why it should be that aligning herself completely with Starmer is a good move on her part. No, she's, because she's got if, an independent mandate. She doesn't have to do this. No, she's exactly. She's elected own. separately. Yeah. And if we assume, as I think, I mean, as I certainly do, that at some point in the future she's thinking of running for leader herself, surely this is like a really bad... Yeah strategic move to piss off the left of the party who might otherwise have been willing to give her a chance? I certainly yeah. would have been willing to give her a and chance. And Starmer knew that he had to win over a significant section of the left of the party in order to become leader. People who would not vote for him now. Yeah. Um, 
And the only reason why he's able to do this now is because he's already leader. Yeah. There's not really very much that the membership can do to touch him. Well, I mean, we could position. we could run a challenge, but that would require the PLP to... Yeah. Right. Would, so would have require a decent PLP. chunk of the PLP to be on board. Um, but the point is that he, he's, like, safe. He's already leader. He doesn't need to win over the left of the party in the way that he did in the... Um, like, this won't hurt his future leadership run, because he's not going to have a future leadership run. But it very, very well yeah. uh, probably will hurt. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's odd. I don't really know why. Why should, why should, I suppose it's just, it the, just the brain rot. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that is it. It's, 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 this is part of the problem with the word centric, that it means a few different things. Being in the centre of what goes on in Westminster is very different to being yeah. in the mainstream of what goes on in the country. Yeah, no, it, absolutely. It's a very different world. Um. God. <laughs> it's the... It's the it's the COVID fatigue. It's probably the COVID fatigue. Okay. Yeah, I'm, fe- I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it today, definitely. I got. I did not get very much sleep last night. Oh. Nah, not at all. I had a hypothetical question for you, David. Okay. That I've had in my back pocket for a little while. Uh, I'm going to spring on you now. For the listeners, David has no idea what I'm about to I have ask no him. Idea, no. no. Okay. Here we go. What do you think would be different? about our current political situation if Ed Miliband had won the 2015 general election? Good question. <laughs> yeah, I did say it was a little question. So I've been thinking about this a lot recently. <laughs> right, right. Um, about, about everything that's happened since 2015 and how <clears throat> bizarre a lot of it is relative to, to sort of politics before then. Um, oh, so I wonder what you think would be different if 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 Ed Miliband had won in twenty fifteen. So thing number one is that Brexit no. wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had the referendum. No one would. Everyone would not care about the EU. Um, probably the SNP would have still had their big surge in Tegans, and that means that it's very hard for Labour to get a majority under any circumstances. So probably Ed Miliband would have to be in coalition with the SNP. Or confidence um, and supply, perhaps. Or confidence supply, More likely. Yeah. That's true. They wouldn't want no yeah. ministers in as the government. Okay, what so, I'm thinking is, yeah, Labour were committed before Corbyn to continuing austerity, so they wouldn't actually have stopped the cuts. Brexit would have been different, but the political alignment before Corbyn was that there was this rising movement of groups to the left of Labour, which were anti-austerity. And if a Labour government had continued to implement austerity, I think that could have had a serious boost. I think pacification could have um, set in seriously. Mm. That might be the wish being the father of the thought, but I could totally see um, uh, the the emerging anti-austerity movement, which sort of got absorbed into the Labour Party when Corbyn came, um, when Corbyn's leadership, when Corbyn came. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would, would have continued to rise on its side. So it, it, possibly what would have happened? Would have, we have had a big green surge, and then we ended up with a green-plied SNP government by 2020? Um <laughs> Would there have been a new party founded? Would Left Unity have actually gotten some? I don't know. Would there have been a Labour split? Would would you have had the, at the time, 10, 15 Labour MPs who were on the left in a minority Labour government refusing to pass, uh, you know, constantly breaking the whip and voting against austerity? I think that's quite likely. Yeah. And I, I wonder what would have happened. So so, so, so I, I wonder what happens if Ed Miliband wins in 2015 continues to implement a slightly softened version of austerity. As you say, people like John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, continue, uh, break the whip to vote against those measures. 
then in 2020, when that would have been, you know, the Fixed on Parliaments Act um, means that the next election would have been in 2020, unless there was a reason to have one earlier. Without Brexit, I don't think you do have that earlier, those earlier elections. Because um, they, they were very much called on the basis of Brexit, even if they became about other things. So I think yeah. Miliband's I mean, term a, a runs Tory to... A minority, or rather a Tory Lib Dem coalition, managed to last a full term because of the fixed term yeah. between 2010 and 2015. Yeah. So I could see a, a Labour-SNP yeah. surprise. So if, if, if a Miliband's government runs to 2020, so sort of May 2020, that's in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. That, that, that still oh, happens, God. right? Like, so what happens then if Miliband's austerity-light programme in the early years of the, 20, of the 2015 parliament, I think it's probably quite likely that that, as with the Tories, sort of easing off on austerity a bit, a bit, in in the, the sort of later part of that period, I think that's probably would happen as well with Labour. And then you have the pandemic in hit, presumably still in sort of hit the UK seriously in March. And then two months later, you have a general election where you have a presumably quite tired Ed Miliband minority government that's been propped up by the SNP for the last five years, has implemented a bunch of austerity measures in the early years of the Parliament, slackened off a bit on that, I would say, is quite likely. Well, I could totally see the SNP doing a Lib Dems in that case, just coming to think of it, because they ran specifically as an anti-austerity party, and then they end up in the, as the minority partner in a... Mm. In an but do you think that means that Ed Miliband doesn't do as much austerity? I mean, Ed Miliband doesn't want to do the austerity, right? Yeah, so that's it's the Ed Balls well, that wants to do the austerity. So maybe Miliband he gets rid of Ed Balls. Ed Miliband was a much more uh, centrist leader than he is Absolutely, uh, definitely. So once he's Prime Minister, um, who knows what would have happened? Maybe he would have had a big cabinet reshuffle and, and brought in a load of yeah. soft left types. Maybe he gets rid of Ed Balls. Mm. Maybe he makes Keir Starmer Chancellor. Yeah, because he became an MP in twenty, and he was he so he, he ran Ed Miliband's campaign Did for he? leadership, right? So so he uh, yeah, so they're 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 quite close friends, I think. Um, so maybe he maybe makes Keir Starmer chancellor, and we have the yeah could happen. I mean, he's no. he's not an economist. Then is Ed Balls an economist? Yeah, only, only, <laughs> only barely, right? <laughs> he's a strictly come dancing. Uh, yes, he is champion. a dancer. That's, um, he's a dancer, really. That's that's how I, I think George Osborne has like a. See yeah, he, his his degree is in uh, history, modern right, history. So, uh, so he's not an economist either. So, well, maybe Ed Miliband just wild card appoints John McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be beautiful. I'd love that. We're just fantasy now. <laughs> this is not prediction yeah. anymore. Um, I mean, didn't he work? Didn't he work for John McDonald? Did he? At one point, I'm surprised. That Someone, did. Someone did. Uh, Someone did. Someone like that. Yeah, no, I know that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Yeah, the, the tendency had been, until basically 2017, the two-party system had been breaking up since, like, the early 2000s. The tendency had been both main parties are declining, with a few sort of aberrations but the long-term trend is both parties are losing the ability to get support neither of them you know the tories hadn't got over 40 percent of the vote since 1992 and labor hadn't got over 40 percent of the vote since 2001 
the tendency was the two-party system... And the Tories managed to capture Brexit and mm. sort of absorb UKIP voters yeah. was what stopped that trajectory. But if Brexit doesn't happen... Well, of you course, UKIP have would have that. still been there. It yeah. It would have been... Presumably... Until then was yeah. Brexit. Presumably they would have continued to sort of increase in salience. Yeah, um, I mean, they, if not in 2014, they, they, had, they got two Tory defectors. So they had representation in Parliament, and one of them was actually re-elected at the 2015 election. He quit the party after the Brexit vote, because he yes. basically thought, my work here is done. Yep. But presumably he would have carried on. I mean, it's hard to say, because it, partly it was a feud between him and Nigel Farage that was very serious. So maybe yeah. it would have fallen apart anyway. It is the tendency of these hard-right groups to usually fall apart eventually anyway. So maybe... But okay, maybe so let's, let's say that Ed, Ed Miliband... Ed Miliband does a bit of austerity in the first couple of years of his government, then gets fed up with their balls, kicks him out, puts someone else from the soft left in. Say it's... I don't know. Say, it, say it's... Keir Starmer, just for the sake of argument, as Chancellor. Um, basically someone he mostly agrees with on policy, so that they can not argue anymore. And so they swing a bit to the left in the second half of the Starmer term. Right. Hmm. Then 2020, May comes around. It's the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. There's a general election. Well, here's a question. What happens? Um, if the Tories had lost in 2015, David Cameron would have resigned. So who would have become Tory leader? Theresa May. Could have been Theresa May. I don't Could've think it's Johnson. Johnson. I mean, he definitely wanted to... Yeah, but John- Johnson only becomes leader, I think, eventually, because the Tories are desperate and they need someone who yeah. they think has proven electoral winner. A lot of the Tories, the t- Tory backbenchers, Tories, particularly back in... Yeah, my reading of this is that a lot of Tories really don't like Boris Johnson and wanted to avoid... And for years, you know, he'd been like yes. an army on the horizon with a dust cloud rising above the hill. He yeah. obviously wants to be Prime Minister. Um, but everyone wants to try and avoid it for as long as possible. But they know, yeah. the Tories always know, they've got this little ace in their back pocket of yeah. one of our MPs is actually quite popular with the country. And if a party is ever in an existential threat, which you've got to remember, in late 2019, the Tory party was polling in fourth place behind the Brexit party, the Lib Dems, and the Labour party at like 20%. That, that was the moment when, if the Tory party was ever going to fall apart entirely and disappear as an electoral force, the autumn of 2019 was probably it. The early yeah. autumn. And then they pulled out their, we don't really like him, but we know he'll win an election card in Boris Johnson. But I don't, so I don't think they're in the they same existential... Dire of a situation, which a, yeah. a lost to Ed Miliband, a minority no. Labour government. So I think it's Theresa May. Still, succeeds Cameron. Yeah, it could be Theresa May. It could be uh, Bor- um, George Osborne. He doesn't strike me as a particular. I don't think it's all- prime ministry type. I mean, he's no, just, he's I, I think he might them. run, but I don't think yeah. he'd win. But the, could the be current Gove, wing actually. of the party would have maintained. It would. Uh, it could be Gove. I think it, it might have come Gove, down yeah. to. I think it might come down to May versus Gove. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think, think May would win. Just though. more popular yeah. in the party. I think. I think May would win still. Yeah. So if if she's if you, if the if a minority Miliband administration managed to make manages to make the full term to twenty fifteen and Theresa May is still opposition leader. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um could Ed Miliband win re election? I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I not think, very good. I mean but presumably he brings in lockdown measures much sooner than the Tories yeah, did. They right? probably handle it. So presumably So presumably he heads off that big spike. So it comes down to May. And you've got the bump from the the everyone in the world, every leader of a country in the world, except for Donald Trump and Shenzhou Abe, get for mm. handling the pandemic. Not the worst ever, yeah. right? So every every other world leader gets a, a bump in the pulse from that, apart from those two. 
That's like probably still there in May. Sorry? You look like a leader yeah. when you're dealing with a so, so that's probably still there to some degree by May. Particularly if, if as I, I suspect, Ed Miliband's government handles things more sensibly than Boris Johnson's in an economic sense as well. So they presumably have a, a more generous furlough and presumably they don't do... They presumably unpick some of the, the worst parts of universal credit so that unemployed people are, are also doing a bit better. I think maybe he could win re-election on that basis. Because May is not a very good campaigner, as, as, it, as, it, as it turned out. Hmm. You know. I mean, and she's presumably still got still got those two advisors hanging around, because they've got they, they won't have gone anywhere yet. Well, I can't remember the bloody names now. Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's hard to say. If, but then, and also, yeah. kind of, if the two-party system continues to break apart, and you end up with a permanent, you know, UKIP and the Greens have four or five MPs each consistent. You've still got the Lib Dems hanging around with eight to ten MPs of their own, and then the SNP continue to have 50 MPs at every election. Um, and neither the Tories nor Labour have got over 40% of the vote in decades. You, I could totally see us ending up with a change of electoral system, mm. and if that happens, then all bets are off. You know what? Well, if I mean, if in 2020, right, Ed Miliband wins the election but doesn't get a majority and comes into power with say the Liberal Democrats or the Greens backing a minority administration whichever way he plumps for it I think maybe the Greens, he's a bit of, a, he's a bit of an eco-warrior is Miliband mm. in, in, in his heart I think if he comes in with the Greens as like a coalition partner or even as a complement of supply if they're pretty close to they, the majority the Greens probably still wouldn't yeah, yeah, but it's, say it's quite close which I don't think is unreasonable in, in the situation I've outlined yeah Maybe maybe we get PR. Maybe maybe right now instead of talking about the Brexit, uh, you know, will we get a, a, a post-Brexit trade deal? We're talking about you know what kind of PR are we going to have? You know, is it going to be party list? Is it going to be STV? Is it going to be something else? I, mean, I just coming out of a hypothetical for a second. For a second, I think that it would be a smart move by Labour to go for the next election. I can't tell you how often when, around election time I always get from people who, non-voters who don't like either of the parties, who I sympathise with a lot these days, um, uh, from <laughs> Lib Dems, uh, from from Green types, yeah, from lots and lots of people, I get the only thing that would ever make me vote Labour is if it promised proportional representation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would exactly be a vote loser. I don't think people would be switching to the Tories in order to defend first past the post because they're so invested in it compared to a different electoral system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it could be a vote winner. And also, it would be. It, I think it's the only real way to achieve long a long-term end to the internal party civil war. I think the idea of having a permanent truce between the neoliberal wing of the Labour Party and the socialist wing of the Labour Party is just not going to happen. They've got competing interests. They're opposed political mm-hmm. forces fighting over... A th- the same institution. They're trapped in one institution, but they can't get on. They, they fundamentally can't get on. The only way... They, they share some things, particularly the sort of centre-left types that, are, that aren't really socialists, can work together, uh, and the socialists, can work together on some things, but it'd be so much easier for them to work together on specific issues if they had their own institution that weren't constantly on fire 
and then they could then form coalitions yeah. and things. But that's only possible if you have a change of electoral system. So if you want your own party to function properly as a well-governed bureaucracy, for one thing, to not be under a constant civil war, and probably to actually be in government quite a lot more often, uh, because the Tories are good at winning majorities, but they're probably not that good winning majorities mm. in the public. You know, I, I can, the British system tends to have many, many, many more Tory governments than Labour governments, and it has done for 100 years. But it tends to have the anti-Tory parties having a majority yes. of the vote. So you could certainly see Labour-Green-Liberal coalition, or uh, Labour-Left-Liberal-Green, or combination of coalitions and confidence supply rate, being the default government with occasional Tory government, rather than the other way around, like we are currently. So I think in the Who'd long term, obviously it's not good by Labour. I don't think Labour, you know, they wouldn't ever win a majority again, which is why they won't do it. No, but then no one would ever win a majority. Yeah, and I think that they would be in government more often. And I think they would probably right. win the first election, or at least it could be a vote winner in the election Maybe. where they propose it. Yeah. Under the current so if you, I mean, if you had, if you had the new left party, who would who would lead Ooh. it? Do you reckon? Ooh, hard to say. The obvious answer is Jeremy Corbyn, but I actually don't think that that would it would end up being that. I think he's moving into elder, state, so. elder statesman role, or at least he wants I think to. He's, tired and he's done with it. <laughs> Currently, we're yeah. having to fight a whole civil war over it. I think this is what's so stupid about this whole civil war that, that you know pressing the big red self-destruct button is that I think the left were basically in a mood to move beyond Corbyn and see him as this elder statesman he wasn't going to cause trouble he was going to occasionally make you know turn up at a protest and go back to his yeah. apartment but instead he's having to be the figurehead of this huge sort of civil war within the party of one side of a civil war within the party rather than anyway <laughs> uh, yeah so I don't think it would be mm. Jeremy Corbyn um, or John McDonnell John McDonnell, maybe? I don't know. McDonnell is, is the more obvious choice if there was... So, in our hypothetical, if there was a split in the Labour Party during an Ed Miliband minority government, right, yeah. McDonnell okay, would be yeah, the obvious totally, choice, right? Because Corbyn only ended up being leader, sort of, because it was his turn, because they tended to sort of, you know, rotate which was going to be the left challenger, and then he won unexpectedly. If they were doing that more deliberately, McDonnell is the more obvious choice for the leader, I think. Um, yeah. But I think that, that there's an amount of hindsight going on. Um, at the time, there was an argument, and I think it was quite a strong argument, actually. There was a certain amount of truth to it. Um, that the fact that it had, even though it wasn't kind of an accident, it was just by chance that it ended up being Corbyn rather than any of the other left. Because he's this kind of cuddly figure, <laughs> you know, it's hard to remember that now because he's been so thoroughly demonised, but... He was always known yeah. as everyone in Parliament, left, right, no matter what, always said he's the nicest man in Parliament. He's just lovely. Yep. He's not an aggressive, <laughs> shouty lefty. He's a socialist grandpa. Um, and the yep. fact that that was the front man, and then on top of that you also had um, sort of more colourful, flamboyant figures like John McDonnell, was, uh, was a formula which had a certain amount of ring to it. I think that the, it's mm. hard to say whether that would have gone better if they'd gone for the classic put the the um the john mcdonnell john i'm honest with people i'm a marxist mcdonnell uh, <laughs> front man john little red book waving a little red book at george osborne <laughs> mcdonnell as the front man maybe it would have gone better That's i don't great. know but i think that there was i don't know yeah uh, yeah i think i agree with you that corbyn was a better choice for leader i'm just not sure he would have been the right, choice yeah, for leader without that sort of fluke I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't if, know whether he was a yeah. leader. It's just that I think that there are certain advantages to to the fact that it ended up being him. Yeah, it's definitely. hard to say whether it would have been better yeah. or worse if it. Had no, been. yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, if there was a new left party now, I think it would be someone younger younger than both of them. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I mean, we can take a bit of evidence from the from the process as it played out that after the 2019 general election law, the left had to work out who it was going to run for the party leadership, and it landed on Rebecca Long Bailey. Mm. So entirely, it's possible. I'm not. I wasn't that blown away by Rebecca Long Bailey's campaign, to be honest. A massive, um, a massively uh, sort of. She is very talented, but she's not particularly talented, like on camera, uh, Mm. running a great campaign, kind of a leader. Mm -hmm. She's not bad. No. Um, But I'm not blown away by her. No. She is very talented. She's she's a great asset to have. Um, It's just that different people have different talents in different areas. She'd be better. I mean, she would have been excellent if Summer had had allowed her to actually be Shadow (laughs) Education Secretary, I think. I think that would be a great role for her. I mean, it would have made more sense to make a Shadow Mm. Education Secretary, I think. I think that would make more sense, but I think that's also specifically why he didn't do it. Yeah, right. Because he didn't want to give her that yeah, platform. She would have outshined, yeah, she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> but you know, yeah. a, there's, there's, a, there's a history of the Labour Party doing that. Um, Nye Bevan outshined Clement Attlee, but it worked well. Mm. Until he resigned over prescription charges. That's true. That's, a, that's another great, greatest Prime Minister we never had. There is this sort of stock character in, in English political culture of the greatest Prime Minister we never had. And they almost yeah. all seem to be left-wingers. They, yeah, they mostly are. You've, you've, you've got you've got Nyberg, then you've got Tiny Ben. I suppose it's a matter of when a great talent arises, they often tend to become, seems to have this... There are people that, that obviously seem like they're going to become Prime Minister, and if they run for it, they tend to. Um, except if they're on the left, because on the left you face all these extra barriers. And so people that yeah. you've had that amount of talent, but you were a Tory, you would have become Prime Minister. But because yeah, you're a socialist, yeah. you have to face these. So yeah, Nybevan, no, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tony Ben. Those are the fantasy football. Compile your 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 fantasy of Labour government <laughs> from any any figure from of the Labour Party from its entire history. Who's prime minister? It's got to be Tony. It's got to be David Miliband, I think. People genuinely yeah. think that. It's not so, so there are people in the world who in their wildest dreams. They don't really dream of it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have as wild as, dream, uh, as wild yeah. dreams as you or I, David. That's obviously what it is. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah. I'm thinking... Yeah, Chancellor. Chancellor. Well, I'm, I'm trying to shoehorn in particular figures, but I'm not quite sure where they should go. That's the thing, Keir Hardy and... Keir Hardy for Chancellor. Maybe. I don't know that much about his... Because um, he was... He was so early in the Labour Party's history that he never had a particular brief. He was just no. the Labour Party, basically. Yeah, it was just him. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought Kit Hardy would be better. He always struck me as a kind of as kind of, you know, down very down to earth kind of labour rights kind of yeah. kind of guy. I would have thought he might be better in uh in a sort of uh well, if called it the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Skills uh. these days only, but 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 the Labour Ministry, which we change yeah. it back to. <laughs> and Nye Bevan, of course, who would have to be helped naturally. So, for, for naturally so, Jeremy Corbyn, Foreign Secretary. Absolutely, that would be brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I really, yeah. I genuinely can't think of anyone. Home Secretary, he would be the best Foreign Secretary. Yeah, I mean, we'd abolish the Home Office, obviously, of course, um, because it's a terrible institution. Yeah, um, and it makes absolutely no sense why it exists. Um, but assuming we didn't do that, just 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 to, just for simplicity's sake, who would be Home Secretary? Hmm. Oh, so many to choose from. 
Mm. I think, also, particularly because it's the Home Office, I'm trying to think if someone <laughs> would do the least damage. Well, that could be Diane Abbott. Yeah, Diane Abbott was quite a good Shadow Home yeah. Secretary. I was thinking Claire Malley. Oh. He's very good on the details, isn't he? And there's a lot of details to master in that brief. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's why I'm yeah. to go a bit mad. We could carry on all day. Yeah. We've got the great offices of state. Gonna write history. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna write history of the the Labour Party one day and I'll include a chapter at the end, which is my, my favourite fantasy football yeah. team. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be cool. I think the left yeah. is it's a bit indulgent. I mean it's very indulgent. But I do think there is a place for it. Of this of, entire episode is indulgent, yeah, but true. it's fine. Of, of in, you've gotta have some kind of vision, right? And, that, and it's impossible to have a vision unless you do... A, I agree. Ab- I ab- ab- um, absolutely agree. Very, very much agree. You know, the the word utopia and, like, utopian thinking is kind of demonised, and it has been since Marx, really, you know. He really smashed the sort of idea of utopian socialism. And he was like, now we've got scientific socialism now. And that's all very well, and I like having a scientific, rational basis for political theory that's definitely very good. But I, I absolutely do think that there always has to be a place for, if you could construct society from the ground upward, how would you build it? And then how can we best approximate that given the society we have now? How can we move in that direction? Mm. Um, because otherwise all you're doing is tinkering around the margins and you might as well be a liberal. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this is how humans um, always create a vision. This is how... I mean, you can look at all of the great social achievements that have ever been... Um, that have ever been as people... There, there has been a part of the process has been um, dreaming about, you know, I'm, I'm sure people yeah. Maybe. in the early stages mm. of feminism would, had you know, utopian dreams about a world of... Absolutely of still do. And that doesn't mean that there's not a place for material analysis and the scientific process but I suppose this is the subtlety of Marx's approach, is that he doesn't say utopian socialism, pff, rubbish. He says that it's an important part in the development of our, our analytical system, but one which we now um, we now have scientific socialism beyond it, right? He's not saying that's mm. a mistake we should, shouldn't ever No, have. no, but I, I do think it's important to sort of say, to, to, to say actually we should bring some of that yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Some of that, some of that dreaming. There is also I mean, the fact that um, yeah. because of... It's important to learn from the past and to have a historically rooted sense of... But also, the the sort of doldrums of the late 90s through to the late... through to the financial crisis was such a complete um, defeat for the left. The fact that the left didn't really exist. Gordon Brown was the most left-wing man in British politics. Um, <laughs> that we do kind of need to... To an extent, we don't need to start from the ground up, but there is an element of we do need to repeat some of the steps of of what was done in the early part Maybe we should have an episode where we, where we hash out some utopian visions of socialist mm. future. Because I am, I am sort of cognizant of the fact that, that in this episode and in, in a lot of our discussions, we we are sort of, sort of, to some degree at least, still operating within the framework of bourgeois Absolutely, politics. Yeah, yeah. And that is, that is because this is intended to be a sort of left-wing take on mm. current affairs. Um... And, spoiler, to trail for the listeners, we are thinking of, slash in the process of, um, putting together a, a podcast that would delve more into theory, if that's your that's your jam. Uh, I've just been reminded to, to, to get on with uh, the thing I said I'd do three weeks ago, um, uh, in, in, in furtherance of that. But, um, but, yeah, I wonder whether we should have an episode where we talk about, you know, f- full, you know, full-throated socialism and, and what we act what we personally actually think yeah. a socialist future might look like. That might be good. 
Just 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 to sort of shore up our socialist credentials, so people don't think we're a bunch <laughs> of liberals. Yeah. Do you think that? Because I'm, I'm 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 worried that they're gonna they're gonna take the Queen's speech stuff and the and the and the fantasy football team stuff and put it together and and and, and everyone will switch off yeah. and run away and go yeah, listen to, clear, that's a, that's a go listen to Chapo or something within the confines of the Labour Party. That's not actually the limit yeah. of my dreaming. No, <laughs> we can go beyond the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. Want- I don't want. Britain I don't know if Rosa Luxemburg would be a great, um, be a great education secretary, but yeah, we, could, yeah. we could see. <laughs> I mean, my vision for the future is not for Britain to continue basically as it is, but to have Labour governments half the time rather than a third of the time, and to still have Tory governments the other half of the time. That is not the limit no. of what we should be aiming for. <laughs> no, no, a socialist republic, one-party state, perhaps a union <laughs> of socialist Ooh. republics. Hmm. Have you considered? <laughs> right. I think we should leave it there, more or less. Unless you have anything else you would like to add. Uh, no, we have really gone on for two hours. Well, this was supposed to be a shorter episode, so... That is short. We've had fun. <laughs> yeah, correct. That's a good point, actually. By the time I, by the time we fiddle around with it, it'll probably be one of the shorter ones. It's certainly been one of the ones I've enjoyed the most, just because of the amount of talking nonsense. Yeah, yeah I, do, I do enjoy the talking nonsense. <laughs> And then we've been talking yeah, nonsense that's, about talking nonsense. We've been talking about how it's important to yeah, talk nonsense sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's how this all started anyway, wasn't it? It was you and me down the pub back that's in sort of 2016, 17. Yeah. We will. One day again. You know, s- several points deep chatting about yeah. politics and talking talking nonsense with one another and all our mates cut together around saying, you, you two should yeah. record this. <laughs> For anyone who, 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 who doesn't know that, I think we, we're just... We were just sufficiently arrogant and narcissistic to think we should spew our opinions out into the world. That is yeah, yeah, true, but true. also, also our friends did did encourage us to do it. So it's their fault if you don't yeah. like it. Yeah, right. Well, David, yeah, it's been a pleasure as oh, always. Likewise. And to the listeners, all I have to say is thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Be excellent to one another. Viva la revolution.